In 2018, uh, the, in a New York Times opinion essay entitled, The Boys Are Not All Right, comedian and author Michael Ian Black wrote this, the past 50 years have redefined what it means to be female in, in America. Girls today are told that they can do anything, be anyone, and they've absorbed the message. They're outperforming boys in school at every level. But it isn't just about performance. To be a girl today is about, is to be the beneficiary of decades of conversation about the complexities of womanhood in its many forms and expressions. Boys, though, have been left behind. No commensurate movement has emerged to help them navigate toward a full expression of their gender. It's no longer enough to be a man. We no longer even know what that means. That was 2018. We no longer know what that means for someone to have a full expression of their gender as a man. So fast forward four years, and things have not gotten any easier for the boys among us. That was written in 2018. Today, given that our culture has moved well beyond the historical, uh, traditional, and biblical uh, roles, genders of male and female too. Now, I did a little research just yesterday. I mean, I knew that like gender dysphoria is like rampant in our culture, but I just want to name some of the genders or the, how people identify. So there's male, female, transgender, agender, androgynous, bigender, butch, cisgender, gender expansive, gender fluid, gender outlaw, gender queer, masculine of center, non-binary, Pan, omnigender, or intersex, two-spirit, eunuch, and personal or non-conforming. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series uh, called Family Dynamics in the Household of Faith and look at, what it, at men in the church. And we're, we're going to discover what it means to be a man, not according to the world's definition of manhood or more accurately of gender, but according to God's word. Because, believe it or not, masculinity, to be a man, is still a thing to God. And so we have to learn all over again, it seems, what it means to move towards mature biblical manhood. That's the language of Scripture. Now, what little there still is of this thing called cultural masculinity, we have wrong and confused models on all sides. So if you take a look just within masculinity, um, on the one side, probably the left, there's this hyper-aggressive, you know, hipster, sexualized man who drinks beer, fights, loves sports, quadding, hunting, objectifies women, has dirty fingernails, and rides a Harley kind of man. Ho, ho, ho. More power. Ho, ho. In fact, just this morning, I was reading a New York Times article, and the, this is, it was such good timing. It, the, the, uh, the, the headline of, of breaking news in the New York Times is this, a gun seller's message to Americans, man up. That was the article, the title of the article, gun seller's message to Americans, man up. The number of firearms in the U.S. is outpacing the country's population as an emboldened gun industry and its allies target buyers with rhetoric of fear machismo and defiance. I'm like, what is machismo? Like, I know what it means to be macho, and I figured it must have something to do with that. So machismo, I looked it up, is a strong or aggressive masculine pride. So that's the extreme on the left. If you move a little closer to century, I guess you could say that, you know, a little more to the middle. 
is the version of a man who is maybe um, somewhat removed, stoic, unfazed by life, uncaring. On the other side, you have the overly passive man who doesn't speak up at all or lead, who is weak to the point of ineffectiveness. If you move a little closer to the middle of right, I guess you could say is a man who is preoccupied with frivolity for the fear of failure, unstable, therefore fails to thrive at anything. But neither of those are pictures of what uh, it means to be a man according to the Bible. So we have to move away from those stereotypical cultural things and wade through the mess of gender confusion and dysphoria and come to what God says it means to be a man. Because it does speak to it a lot. How does the Bible define manhood? Now, we could spend our time this morning like doing character studies of men in the Bible, and that would be revealing. Um, you have men like David, a very well-known uh, leader, king, psalmist. So what does it mean to be a man according to David? Sure, he was a warrior. He was a man after God's own heart. But he also danced like a fool. He wrote poetry. He fell into sexual temptation and sin and violence. And so the scripture paints a very uh, honest picture of manhood, both what's acceptable to God and what's not. And we have, to, we have to sort through that and find out we don't accept wholesale that everything David did was good. The bad is in there so that we learn how to avoid those things. Another strong leader is Moses. Uh, scripture says that he uh, is a very strong leader. We see that. And yet he was meek and gentle. The most meek person on the face of the earth next to Christ. So what does meekness mean? What is, is meekness equivalent with weakness or is it uh, strength that's brought under control? Moses also had his failures. Like David, he took matters into his own hand and killed a man. What can we learn from Moses? Then we have Jesus, who was perfect. He resisted temptation. He cared deeply about others. He wept. He treated women with honor and respect. He picked up a whip when it was needed and rebuked people harshly when it was needed. And he also laid down his life to save us. So we could look at all of these models. What we're going to do this morning is come to a scripture that talks about in, more, in a more wholesome way, the characteristics that make up a man and then how we should live that out. And that's from 1 Corinthians 16. And this will give us, hopefully, what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we are to equip the church till we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and the of the, of, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that's my goal today is like, what is, what is mature manhood and what does it mean to live that out to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ? It's a, it's a big calling. But uh, we're gonna, let's stand for the reading of God's word today, 1 Corinthians 16. Two short verses at the end of a book. Let me just frame the context a little bit before I read this. It's probably behind you and you're reading it already. But here's the context. The church in Corinth was, was a bit of a mess. They were dealing with all kinds of problems. They were divided. There were sexual issues. There was divisions. There was uh, 
um, all manner of things that were uh, problematic in this church. And Paul is away at the moment, and he's in Ephesus planting a church, another church. Apollos, a leader in the church, is also away. And so these guys are kind of left to figure it out, to sort it out. And so chapter 16 is right near the end of his letter. And he says, look, with all that's going on, this is what I want you to believe. And this is how I want you to act because you're on your own for a while. So he's basically saying, act, act like men, figure it out. So here we go. Acts 16, sorry, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Father, as we learn from you today, may you teach us what it means to uh, move towards uh, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's, it's, we need your help with this, God, as men. So commit this to you. Bless our time together as we dig into your word a little further, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, you can go ahead and have a seat. It's, it's Father's Day, but we're, I'm, I'm speaking, obviously, to men in general, whether you're dad or not. Many of us, if you're a man, you're called to be a father, spiritually, to those who are younger than you, to lead them and guide them. And so this is for all of us today. The first thing we see about a biblical man, a mature biblical man, is that he is watchful. The word means to be on the alert to keep one's eyes open, to stay awake, to be vigilant for your life. How many men today, and I, this, is, this message is super convicting to me, super convicting. Uh, I mean, we, as preachers, we have to preach to ourselves before we preach to anyone else, right? How many men today are just simply uninterested, sleepy, dopey, even dead, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, lethargic. This is a call to wake up. It's what the word literally is, to wake up, to stay awake, to have your eyes wide open. This is what it means to be a man in five different areas. The word that is used in 1 Corinthians 16 is used in a number of key area, uh, other texts in the New Testament, so let's quickly look at them. They won't be on the screen, but this is what it means to be watchful. Number one, it means to be prayerful. Men, the way we stay awake is to pray. But what is the one thing that puts us to sleep? <laughs> Prayer, <laughs> to pray. Matthew 26 and Mark 14. And his disciples, and he came, Jesus came to his disciples. This is just before the greatest act of manhood possible, to lay down a life for someone. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he went into the garden to pray. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. That word watch is the same one that Paul uses here. Wake up. Wake up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. A biblical man is one who is watchful in prayer. Secondly, he's watchful in his work, in serving. He rolls up his sleeves. We, we sang the song today about the return of the Lord, that we might be ready for God's return. In Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus told a parable about, <clears throat> about looking after his house while he's away. 
The master is away right now, but he's gonna come back. And so what does it mean? Matthew 24, Jesus said, therefore, stay awake. It's the same word, stay awake, be watchful. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in, uh, had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, same word, and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Stay awake. So Jesus said, men, we need to be active in kingdom work until the king returns. That's what it means to be a man, to stay awake and to be active and to guard the house from being broken into. That's the third thing. A watchful man is a man who leads and protects and guards the flock. He guards his family and he guards the church. That's biblical manhood. He guards the church church and his family from the thief breaking in and taking him off guard and stealing. And he also guards his family and his church from false doctrine. Acts chapter 20, remember Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he's in Ephesus. And when he was done his work in Ephesus, Ephesus, he, he gave a charge to the Ephesian elders to guard the doctrine of the church and protect it from within, from wolves. And he said this in Acts 20, therefore be alert, same word, stay awake guys, stay awake. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. This is what it means to be a man, to stay awake and to guard and protect your flock from wolves. Men, are you aware of the wolves that are coming to take your family? That are coming to take this church? Are we in prayer about that? Are we guarding that? Are we awake to that? The next thing where this word is used is in terms of our personal integrity. We need to be watchful over our personal integrity and guard it. I want to go to Revelation 3 on this one again. Jesus to the church. And he says there, and to the angel of the church of Sardis, right, Revelation 3, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Same word, wake up, be watchful. And strengthen what is about to die. For I have not found your works. Now these aren't the works like serving in the church. These are your works is in the life that you live the fruit of your life. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. We need to wake up to our own personal integrity and make sure that we are not soiling our garments. In Revelation 16, near the end of that, same word, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake 
Now it moves from not just soiling your garments, but from keeping your garments on. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, wakes up, watchful, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Don't get caught, men, with soiled garments or no garments. Literally, don't get caught with your pants down. Quite literally. That's what Jesus wants from us as men, to guard our integrity and not get caught with our pants down. Listen, guys, I was reflecting on this a little bit. This is so challenging to me. I was reflecting on this a little bit this morning as I woke up early and was thinking about the text. You know that phrase, the grass is greener on the other side? It's not. The grass is greener on the side that you water, that you fertilize, and that you tend. That's at home. Man, that's at home. That's where the grass is greener. If you want it to be. And that's the side that Jesus wants to stay on what's us to stay on. That's what it means to be a man, to, to watch and to guard, to be awake and alert to the temptations and the things that would cause us to soil our garments or be left exposed. Number five. Some people are panicking already. I'm on point five of, sub point five of point one. Okay, here we go. To be watchful is to resist the devil. Listen to 1 Peter 5. This one will be on the screen. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith. This is what it means to be a man, to resist the devil. Because the devil does not want us to pray. He does not want us to serve our families or serve the church. He does not want us to lead. He does not want us... He does not want our integrity to remain intact and he will do all he can to see us destroyed. So we need to watch. St. Jerome, back in 300, he lived between 347 and 4, I don't know, 410 or 420, something like that. He said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. You've heard that phrase before, right? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. So in this thing called freedom session that I've taken people through many times, one of the ways that we stand firm, that we are watchful, we keep our eyes open, is literally to be busy. Because the moment we sit and relax is when, is when the enemy comes in and catches us sleeping. So serve. Find something useful for your hands to do. Don't, don't sit at home too much, except to be with your wife and your children, your family. But be busy about the work of the kingdom in the church, in the community. That's what it means to be a biblical man. Secondly, a biblical man stands firm in the faith. See how these build on one another? Paul said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Um, there's that saying that says, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And there's a natural tendency within us men, right, to stand up for something. But for what? What do we need to get, take a stand for? We often stand for the wrong things. Three areas that we need to take a stand for, and these, again, are um, 
all words that are used in First Corinthians, and there are actually many of them in context. We need to take a stand for the gospel. Back up one chapter. Paul said this. He wrote this to this church. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Listen, it is the gospel through which we are saved. Do you know it, and do you share it regularly with your family? Does your family, do your kids know the gospel? Do they know that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, and the reason he died for them is because their sin makes them worthy of death, but that God's grace is sufficient. Does your family know that? My dad is 88 years old. <clears throat> I'll call him later today for Father's Day, obviously, but uh, he, has, he has dementia of a certain form, not full-blown, but there, there are many times where he doesn't know really what's going on. And so it makes conversations interesting because I will hear the same things as I phone that I did the previous phone call. And within the phone call, I hear the same thing two or three times. But one of the things that my dad says to me almost every time that I phone him, literally, is he says, Eldon, did you know that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment? <laughs> and then my dad says, and I might add this, are you ready for that day? And then later on in the conversation, he'll say it again. Eldon, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Are you ready for that day? <laughs> you know, if there's one thing that my dad should be stuck on, it's this. And I love it. I love it. I chuckle when I phone him and he repeatedly tells me this. But it's like, man, that is a good thing to have in your brain. That's the gospel there's going to come a day of reckoning. We will all die. And if we die in our sin, we're going to die under the wrath and judgment of God. But when we trust in Christ, that he bore the wrath of God, he judges us worthy, righteous, not based on anything we've done, but based on what Christ has done. Are we ready for that day? Do our kids know this? Does our family know this? This is very convicting to me. This is what it means to be a man. Paul said to the Philippian church, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So a biblical man stands firm in the gospel. He stands firm against the enemy. We've already talked about this a little bit, but listen to Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Paul said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. And then he lists what the armor of God is. Stand, 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 stand. 
That's what it means to be a man, is to take a stand. There are many prayers that Jesus prayed. Many of them are not recorded. But the Bible tells us that on a very regular basis, Jesus withdrew to lonely and quiet places to pray, to spend time with his Father. But the prayers of Jesus that are recorded all have a common denominator. I've, I've studied this, and it's very important to me. And I, pr- and I pray this way every day, multiple times a day. You know what that common denominator is? Protection and deliverance from the evil one. If it was that important to Jesus, I think it should be important to us too. We need to take a stand in prayer against the enemy who wants to destroy us. Man, do you pray this way? Do you pray it for yourself? Do you pray it for your kids? Do you pray it for this church? Because the enemy does not play nice or fair. He is here to destroy you. He's here to destroy your family, to destroy this church. Are you contending? Are you standing firm? Are you the first line of defense to protect those under your watch care, under your roof, under your authority? Don't give the evil one so much as an inch or he will take a thousand miles in a heartbeat. So we stand firm on the gospel against the enemy and on Christ. So if you go back to earlier in 1 Corinthians in context, again, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul laid a foundation, all pointing, then he addresses specific issues, and then all pointing to the resurrection and then the conclusion of the letter. It's such a wonderfully crafted letter. But at the beginning, he's laying this foundation. He said, said, guys, the most important foundation is the one that has already been laid, and that is Christ. And you are building on that. That's your, first, that's your first stand, is not on your own, but upon the foundation of Christ. We are not the foundation. We are the builders on that foundation, and we stand firm on Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so when we, when we think about uh, standing firm in our faith on Christ, we have to ask questions about our inner life, our personal life. You could call it your devotional life, your prayer life. Where is it? Where is it, men? That's where we stand. To stand firm means to be steadfast in something, and if there's one thing to be steadfast in, it's in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This morning, I read from Psalm 26. I'm working through the Psalms right now. Psalm 26, 11 and 12 says this, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground and in the assembly, I will bless the Lord. What is the level ground that you stand on? It better be the foundation of Christ. A biblical man stands on the gospel against the enemy and on Christ. A biblical man, number three, is courageous. Now, other translations, like I read this morning, says act like men. I actually don't really like that translation. (laughs) The original, or that interpretation, the original word means to be courageous or to act courageously. 
A biblical man is one who acts courageously. There are three areas that require courage for us to act with courage. Number one is in the struggle or the battle with the evil one, our enemy. I've already talked about that. But listen, a leader like Joshua, here's another one that we could name, right? We've got biblical leaders like David, like Moses. What about Joshua? At the end of Deuteronomy, verses 6, 7, and 23, at the beginning of Joshua, verses 6, 7, and 9, six times to one man, God said this, be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, He will not leave you or forsake you. Six times God had to tell Joshua to be strong and to be courageous in the face of the enemy as he conquered these unknown lands. Another area that requires courage is in the battle against sin. We've already talked about that a little bit, but men... Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 4. Paul said, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That doesn't sound like child's play to me. <laughs> You're resisting to the point of shedding your blood. That's the struggle with sin, and that takes courage. Are we comfortable in our sin? Have we shed blood to keep ourselves pure, to guard our family, to keep the door closed to the enemy? Because resisting sin is a fight which takes courage. And then there's ourselves. Then there's ourselves. I read a quote one time. It was actually on a, a sign in front of a church. It said this, integrity is who you are when no one is watching. Integrity is who I am when no one is watching. It's who I am when I'm by myself, just me and God. Before I got into the Psalms, I read through Job. So just last week, I read Job 38. Job is a, is a very fascinating book. You know, these, these calamities come upon Job, a righteous man. And nobody knows why, but his friends assumed this because his life was all out of order. He was sinning, and so they had all these judgments against Job because they thought they understood God so well. And Job didn't even understand what was going on because now he's got his friends who are accusing him. And he's like, no, I haven't done anything wrong. Why is this happening to me, God? And he literally calls God out, and he says, I want to talk to you. God, I want a meeting, just me and you. You need to explain yourself to me why this has happened in my life. Well, lo and behold, God takes Job up on his offer, on his challenge. And in chapter 38, verse 1 through 3, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. He said, gird up your loins. We're going to have a conversation here like a man, just me and you. And then God says this, I will question you and you make it known to me. And so God starts questioning Job and Job has no answer. So men, when it comes to being a man, it's standing before God and not, and not having God question us so that we can answer him and so that we can question him 
that he might answer us with what's true, with what's right. That's where our manhood comes from, is recognizing that we don't have the answers, but God is the one who is in control no matter what's happening in our lives. And he will answer us. We don't answer. We answer to him. He doesn't have to answer to us. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This morning I read Psalm 31. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. That's what it means to be a man, to wait for the Lord, to be before the Lord one-on-one and let him strengthen us and give us courage with his knowledge, his truth. Number four, a biblical man becomes strong. In our scripture, it says, is strong. The original language says to strengthen or to become strong. The idea here is that we're not strong. In fact, I think, I think a, a true man is one who is able to admit weakness. Rather than to go around acting strong like we think we are, but when we're really not. That's when, things, that's when we really get into trouble. Is when we think we can do this on our own. No, we're weak. We need to become strong. Let's go back to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, in his mighty power. So where are you weak this morning, guys? (laughs) Strengthen it in the spirit. Acknowledge your shortcomings, your temptations, your fears, your inadequacies, your failures. That's what it means to be, be a man, to acknowledge those things and then to rely on God's power through his spirit and his word. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, but he said to me, God said to me, my grace is sufficient to you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So courage literally, is acknowledging our weaknesses and our fears and then strengthen the Lord moving forward in those. That's what it means to be a man. And number five, a biblical man does everything in love. Just so you, just so you understand, in the original language, everything means every single thing. <laughs> everything. There's no secret here. Everything. Do everything in love. Love is the foundation that enables all the other aspects of biblical masculinity to be built. We are watchful, we are firm, we are courageous, and we are strong in the Lord because we love, which is built on Christ's love for us. What does love look like? Again, in context, go back a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians to 13. I'm sure a lot of us could say this by memory, but it's easy to say it, it's hard to live it. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Wow, this was so convicting to me as I put this in here. Is this the way I, I live, I act? Men, is this the way we live? Ephesians 5, Paul wrote to the church there. He said, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, this is the way we are to love the church and our families by sacrificing by putting others first, by considering, considering others better than ourselves, by protecting others at all cost, by laying down what we want, our desires, and our interests for the sake of others. What a high calling, men. But biblical manhood is sacrificial in the same way that God, our Father, loves us. So let's end. It all comes back to Father's Day, right? Let's put the focus on Father's Day where it belongs, on God, our Heavenly Father. That's Father's Day. So Jesus said to us through John, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so also ought we to love one another and see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Men, you're a child of God who deeply loves you so that we can love so that we can become strong and courageous in his strength, so that we can stand firm in our faith, so that we can be fully awake and alert to the things of God and to the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And Lord, that's not just our physical, literal daily bread. But we in particular as men, we need you desperately. We need everything that you can give us in order to be mature men who follow your word, who love our families and our church well, who serve, who protect, who pray. And God, you know our weaknesses and our, our failures and our temptations. So we pray that you would forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.